0: Texas gets slammed with ransomware, protecting the 2020 elections from foreign meddling, and benchmarking third-party vendor security in healthcare. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. It seems that the ransomware bullseye is still firmly on US states and municipalities, Texas became another member of this uninvited club with the Texas Department of Information Resources based in the state capital of Austin issuing a statement saying that the attacks had hit multiple Texas government entities, demanding ransom for decryption to the tune of 2.5 million US dollars. With more on this and the ongoing ransomware threat is ISMG's executive editor of Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz.
1: Ransomware attackers continue to focus on local government entities, as well as smaller businesses. While it is not clear how many crypto-locking malware attack attempts succeed, the lure of a payday appears to be driving a steady stream of criminals to continue such campaigns. Recent victims have included a number of local government entities in Texas who have collectively received a $2.5 million ransom demand. All 22 affected government entities hit by the ransomware have been working with the state's Department of Information Resources to assess the damage and restore systems. Following the attack last Friday, by Tuesday, 25% of the affected entities had transitioned from response and assessment to remediation and recovery, says the state's Department of Information Resources, which is leading the incident response. State officials say all evidence points to the infections being the work of a single threat actor. Beyond that, citing this being an ongoing investigation involving the FBI's cyber division, officials told me that they won't be commenting further, for example, on the type of ransomware used by attackers, whether any ransom notes been received, or to name the victims. But on Wednesday, Gary Heinrich, the mayor of Keene, Texas, which was hit in the attacks, told NPR that attackers had collectively demanded a ransom worth $2.5 million to restore all crypto systems across the 22 municipalities. The mayor noted that his municipality, which only has 6,100 residents, isn't big enough to run IT in-house. Instead, it uses a managed service provider.
2: They just got into our software provider, the guys who kind of run our IT systems. That happens to a lot of folks in Texas that use providers to do that because we don't have a staff big enough to have IT in-house.
1: The coordinated ransomware attacks against Texas government entities and their service providers shows that local governments remain a frequent and occasionally lucrative target for criminals, with some victims paying $400,000 or more for the promise of a decryption key. So it should come as no surprise that in May, cybersecurity firm Recorded Future warned that ransomware attacks against U.S. cities had been increasing sharply. At least some victims do pay, and overall, they're paying more. From the first quarter to the second quarter of this year, the average ransom paid by victims who did pay more than doubled, from about $13,000 to more than $36,000, according to ransomware incident response firm Coveware. The increase was largely due to the ransoms being demanded by attackers wielding Ryuk as well as Sodenokibi ransomware. Coveware says these two different ransomware strains are predominantly used in targeted attacks against larger enterprises, as well as against distributed networks of companies managed by IT service providers. So as long as organizations fail to put proper ransomware defenses in place, and as long as victims have a propensity to pay, it seems unlikely that ransomware attacks will decrease anytime in the near future. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz.
2: You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news.
0: We're still a year away from the 2020 U.S. presidential election, but the hangover of Russian election meddling in 2016 is still seen as a clear and present danger to the integrity of upcoming elections and democracy itself. In light of this, an A-list of cyber experts, including former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson, has put its weights behind US CyberDome, a non-partisan initiative to protect presidential campaigns against foreign influence. Matthew Barrett, the former NIST leader and co-founder of CyberDome, outlines how this group is gearing up for the 2020 election, and ISMG's SVP of editorial, Tom Field, recently had the opportunity to discuss this initiative with Matthew. Tom asked, first of all, when there are already pretty significant protective tools in place by organizations like the FBI, why is U.S. CyberDome needed? Here's Matthew's response. Well, you know, there's a need for many hands
2: and and, uh, many perspectives on this really complicated circumstance. We feel like, you know, aspirationally what we do is we work to better ensure free speech, an election free of interference, and really, in you know, in a lot of respects, the sanctity of our democracy. M- more tactically, uh, a way to think about a, uh, what we do is, you know, political campaigns in particular are a fairly vulnerable party. They have a singular focus, and it's not cybersecurity, right? They may have technologists who are in support of the campaign, but their singular focus is on winning the election and. They have a relatively short life cycle, and they're staffed fairly heavily by volunteers. And all of these things combined can lead to cybersecurity issues, can lead to cybersecurity that when you compare, for instance, relative to a longer-running sort of organization like maybe a corporation, uh, they, they, they have a few more cybersecurity issues that they face. So we're here to help them out. Now, Matt, one of the things that impresses me is the the truly stellar board of advisors you have behind U.S. CyberDome. Talk to me about how this was put together and who has put it together, please. Well, first of all, U.S. CyberDome was assembled in 2014. We actually were aware of and there offered our support for the 2016 uh, U.S. presidential elections. And we just had trouble getting full engagement, getting things up and running, truly, truly helping like we knew, like we, co- knew we could and like we wanted to for that 2016 U.S. presidential cycle. The, the whole effort was revitalized this summer when the co-founders, Joe, Joe Driscoll, Scott Morris, Mary Dickinson, and myself began dialogues about how we could do better. Uh, this time, how we could engage more, how we could get more uptake. And Mary had a history with Secretary Jay Johnson, previous Secretary of uh, Department of Homeland Security, and reached out to Jay to gauge his his interest. And enthusiastically, that he was interested. And before you know it, Secretary Johnson was calling some of his former colleagues to gather together the advisory board that you see today. So talk to me about how CyberDome is going to act as we look forward to the 2020 campaigns. I mean, there's a couple of ways of thinking about how we act. One way is we offer our services to all campaigns, regardless of political party. so Republicans, Democrats, independents, what have you, right? We're nonpartisan in our approach. We're really, we have no political orientation to us. That's not our job. Our job is to Help out with uh, cybersecurity and making folks aware of any information operations campaigns. That's our job. We're helping out in, in 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 some respects. We help out in ways that only a nonprofit can, right? That there's some natural sensitivities. There always have been. I think there always will be. It's just it's just a part of the ecosystem. Sensitivities to sharing information with the U.S. federal government. Those things are always there, whether it's a, a U.S presidential campaign, whether it's a different type of campaign, whether it's just private sector at large, right? And there's also concerns when a campaign is approached by a for-profit of what the what the true intent of the party is. So we we as a nonprofit can better serve as a, a trusted and honest broker to the campaigns. Another way how how we will act is we're imp- implementing our solution in phases. Those phases are synonymous with Donation levels and what really that allows us to do is as we receive donations, we can implement in an equitable sort of way to all campaigns the first phase, the second phase, the third phase of our solution.
0: Finally, in the age of IoT and cloud, the topic of vendor risk management is very much front and center in the cybersecurity discussion. It's hard to think of an industry where this is more critical than healthcare where people's lives are quite literally on the line. This week, ISMG's executive editor, Healthcare Info Security, Marion Culbersuk-McGee spoke with Tom Pasek, CIO of Inspira Health, a healthcare delivery system based in Vineland, New Jersey, about the steps that they've taken to mitigate third-party vendor risk. Marion asked Tom what benchmarks Inspira Health uses for vendor assessment. Here's Tom's response.
3: It is HIPAA compliant and we do look at, you know, the InfoSec practices for HIPAA and we apply those. We do because we're not a huge organization with a big security team, so we we use outside help with some of that as well. We've used some, uh, we've gathered our questionnaire from some best practices of other organizations and other vendors that are in the space that do these types of assessments to create the questionnaire that best works for us. But yes, it, it does follow HIPAA guidelines and uh, InfoSec security guidelines as well. So it's not onerous. Uh, we've seen some of these that could be 20 pages long. <laughs> and quite frankly, you try to do that, you're not going to get much compliance from the vendor and even mm-hmm. filling out one of those questionnaires. So our questionnaire is, I believe it's about 28 questions that we use. So we try to streamline it as much as possible, but we'll get to the, to the meat of the subject. And then if, in fact, we are going to move forward with a vendor, we will, depending on that level, so if they're they're at a high risk where they're really processing our data, we will send them a follow-up questionnaire after that with some more detail. But Again, to engage with the vendor and get cooperation, we start off with a little more streamlined application assessment to try to get compliance with them to complete this. Not every vendor wants to do that. And quite honestly, if they don't do it, we don't do business with them. The simple is that you have to follow the process in order to do that. And, you know, we've had some people upset in our organization because they really wanted a vendor. And quite frankly, they just weren't up to speed. They weren't ready. They weren't prepared to deal with our information and security practices that are required in healthcare. And so we've turned vendors away, and people have, have gotten on board and in our organization. they realize realized that that has to happen, and now many of them will reach out to us ahead of time saying, hey, I'm starting to look at this. This vendor, for this purpose, can you send me your assessment so we can at least get that out of the way ahead of time and start that process?
0: That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.